Welcome to Critical Matters, a sound podcast covering a broad range of topics related to the practice of intensive care medicine. Sound provides comprehensive critical care programs to hospitals across the country. To learn more about our programs and career opportunities, visit www.soundphysicians.com. And now, your host, Dr. Sergio Zanotti. In today's episode of the podcast, we will discuss prone position ventilation and adult respiratory distress syndrome, ARDS. Despite clinical trials demonstrating the benefit in mortality, adoption of prone position ventilation has been challenging. We will discuss the impact the COVID-19 pandemic had on the use of prone position ventilation and lessons learned that can help increase the proper use of this treatment modality moving forward. Our guest is Dr. Chad Hochberg a member of the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine, Department of Medicine at John Hopkins University Medical School in Baltimore, Maryland. Dr. Hochberg was recognized by the American Thoracic Society with the 2023 Fiskind Clinical Research Scholar Award. His research has focused on the use of real-world data to understand variation in mechanical ventilation and supportive practices in the ICU and seeks to leverage implementation science to amplify the use of evidence-based treatments at the bedside. He has studied prone position ventilation during and after COVID-19 pandemic. Chad, it's a privilege and an honor to have you today. Welcome to Critical Matters. Thank you, Sergio. It's a pleasure to be here. So let's talk about a, a topic that a couple of years ago was very, very present in all ICUs and then kind of faded away, but still, I believe, uh, is a very important topic for us as we treat ARDS in the future. And it's about prone positioning and also try to gather some lessons of what you have learned through studying the implementation of prone position during COVID-19. But I would like to start with a, just a general introduction to prone position ventilation. And maybe just, I mean, start with physiology, a little bit of a very basic physiology 101 review of what, why we think that this might even be a good idea to begin with. Yeah, great, Sergio. Um, you know, we, Prone positioning has actually been something that people have been interested in for um, a long time in clinical medicine, starting probably in the 1970s when anesthesiologists noted that in their anesthetized and often paralyzed patients, when they applied PEEP, the ventral lung units would um, preferentially inflate and the posterior dorsal portion of the, the diaphragm would uh, move um, less than the ventral portion. And so there was sort of clinical interest in maybe prone positioning would um, even out the movement uh, of the diaphragm or the inflation of the lungs. Um, and that was in the 1970s, yet it, it really wasn't until the um, use of CT scans um, starting in research and then clinically uh, that people people became, again, interested in prone positioning. And this was motivated by the fact that uh, when you have an ARDS patient and you um, do the CT scan when they're lying supine, you tend to see um, dorsally predominant um, uh, infiltrates. Uh, and then Gattinoni and some sort of landmark studies would then prone patients repeat a CT and you would see that the infiltrates had shifted and they were now uh, ventral. So people became interested in uh, restoring um, aeration uh, to dorsal lung units and, and recruiting the, that, uh, that volume of lung tissue, which is uh, greater than the anterior portion. Um, yet, sort of as we've studied this more, the, the physiology is probably more complicated than, than just uh, recruiting the lung. It turns out when you prone a patient and uh, you do re-aerate those dorsal units, um, the gravitational um, uh, um, 
gradient uh, of pleural pressure or blood flow, excuse me, actually remains relatively similar. Similar. So the dorsal units still remain with the highest uh, degree of blood flow, and now they're re-aerated, so you're sort of improving VQ matching. Proning also probably homogenizes pleural pressures um, and therefore transpulmonary pressure, the pressure across the lung. Um, so you're decreasing um, uh, transpulmonary pressure, you're, you're decreasing sort of regional areas of hyperinflation and hypoinflation and homogenizing that aeration. And, and that may be a, a mechanism by which uh, ventilator-induced lung injury could be decreased. Excellent. I think it's important to start with physiology because at a very elemental level, when we're treating these patients with prone position ventilation, we are trying to improve VQ perfusion and that VQ mismatch, and we're also protecting the lung, which is ultimately kind of two of the, two of the tenets of, of managing patients with ARDS. Could you tell us, chat a little bit about kind of like, you mentioned Gattinoni, Dr. Gattinoni, uh, but I guess you did one of the first landmark large studies uh, that was a negative study initially, but how we got <coughs> from that study to Proceva and kind of where the literature has, has fallen on prone position in ARDS. Yeah, that's exactly right, Sergio. It's that uh, Gattinoni um, performed the first um, large clinical trial. This was in 2001, um, where in a, a trial of about 300 patients that had uh, ARDS, um, he performed proning for six hours a day uh, for about a 10-day period. Um, and like you mentioned, this was a, a negative trial in that there was no average uh, benefit of prone position. Um, but this trial, again, proning was given in a short um, session, six hours a day, uh, and given to a, a wide variety of patients with ARDS. Sort of the pattern that's emerged with trials of proning and ARDS or proning and respiratory failure since then is sort of a, a trend to starting to use proning longer. So increasing the dose. If, if proning is lung protective, perhaps people need a, a greater dose to achieve the benefit. And then narrowing down into a group of patients that um, um, are thought to benefit. So a, a group of patients that are sick enough to sort of need this uh, more um, enhanced way of, of providing uh, lung protection. So over the years, then there were trials and um, patients where proning was extended uh, over time. And ultimately, this led to signals that with extended proning in combination with lung protective ventilation um, in patients that are severe enough to, to need enhanced uh, lung protection, like those with moderate to severe ARDS, uh, there was a mortality benefit. Uh, and that was shown definitively in, in the 2013 Perceva trial, which is a, a multi-center trial done in ICUs in France that took patients with moderate to severe ARDS, the PDF of less than 150, um, and had a, a strategy of proning them for uh, 16 hours with daily supination and then reproning if they still met hypoxemia uh, criteria. And in this trial, there was a 17% absolute mortality reduction, so a large uh, reduction in mortality. Excellent. Subsequently, meta-analyses have you know put these together, and um, there is a signal that you know proning again in combination with lung protective ventilation, so um, good uh, adherence to low tidal volume ventilation, and for long enough periods, uh, does appear to to have a mortality benefit for patients. Perfect. So really, I mean, when when we see this uh, almost a decade right of, of trials from two thousand and one to. 2013, and we finally had a positive study that was then followed by some meta-analysis that suggested that. And it seems that some of the lessons learned, which are true for, for every therapy, is that patient selection, it's probably utilized more effectively in severe to moderately to severe or the sickest patients. 
the dose also was something that was different, right? I mean, they started with six hours and probably right. we need a lot more than that. And then I guess the, the final a part of uh, the story, I guess, would be that probably Gattinoni didn't use the same lung protective ventilation that Proceva used. And that was also the time as we understood what low tidal volume and other lung protective strategies could do for the ARDS. And in that context, it is now that we believe that there is a, a, a strong signal of an improve, improvement in mortality, correct? Yeah, that, that's right. And, and, um, and really, I, I think of it as a strategy to, to enhance uh, lung protection. It doesn't sort of achieve lung protection just on its own, so it has to be delivered with the other good tenants of, of lung protective ventilation. And that puts us at circa 2017. ATS, SECM, and the European Society had guidelines for ARDS management. So at that point, what were the guidelines telling us to do? Yeah, so uh, in those guidelines, which, as you mentioned, were sort of from joint societies, both American societies and European societies, um, based on meta-analyses that had been published and that they did for that that, uh, guideline, they made a recommendation that in patients with severe ARDS, so this is a P to F of 100 um, or less, that these patients receive at least 12 hours of proning um, in conjunction with lung protective ventilation. Uh, And they gave this a, a strong recommendation with moderate to high confidence. Um, that moderate to high confidence is really driven by the, the Proceva trial um, in terms of uh, them feeling confident that there's a mortality benefit. And then the meta-analyses had, had sort of led to their um, recommendation that it be in the, in the most severe group. Um, so a little different than the Proceva trial and that the guidelines when they came out in 2017 still recommended proning only for sort of the most severe patients. Perfect. And I think that this is uh, one of the areas that obviously is of high interest for you from a research perspective, but also something we were discussing pre-recording, which is it's great to have evidence to support therapies, but it's a different story to make it happen at the bedside for the right patients, right? And that's like the, that's right, yeah. the implementation part. So what was happening with prone positioning after these recommendations, after Proceva and the meta-analysis and pre-COVID? Yeah, that's a great question. So, um, you know, just to, to re-highlight the time frame, 2013 is the randomized trial, the landmark trial, the Perceva trial that shows a mortality benefit. These guidelines are published in 2017. Um, and then there's a number of observational studies uh, from multiple settings, include studies that include, you know, international um uh, multinational studies like LungSafe that showed proning was really used infrequently in practice. So taking all comers with ARDS, so not just those that would sort of meet the the guideline recommendation, probably something around 6% of those patients were prone. Uh, And even in these studies where you look at patients with severe ARDS that would really seem to to meet indications for proning, um, only about a third of those patients were proned. So it was used infrequently in practice, and this was noted in sort of, again, multiple settings um, it was noted um, in a study done by some of my colleagues here, too, in things like in patients that go on to receive ECMO um, for ARDS. Even in those patients, proning was <clears throat> being used relatively infrequently prior to them uh, being cannulated. And I believe, Chad, this is a, a recurrent theme in, in medicine and, and clearly in our, in our field as well, is when people are not utilizing um, to its maximum potential therapies that have um, good evidence to support them and the right patients, and yet we're jumping, like you said, to maybe jumping to ECMO 
without even trying proning in some of these patients early on. So something that, that I think is a challenge for all clinicians, and the reason why we're having this conversation today is that it's great to understand the literature and to see when we have evidence, but the, the hard part is really to make it happen at a large scale at the bedside for patients all over the country or the world, right? Yeah, uh, absolutely. Um, and it, it probably requires a, a different set of, um, of sort of research techniques to certainly understand how to get these therapies into practice. Um, but it, it really, it also requires a lot of local buy-in and, and clinicians being um, ready to sort of believe in these therapies and, and be willing to use them. Now, anybody who's listening today who uh, has only practiced during COVID might be thinking, that's not my experience, right? So why don't you tell That's us, Chad, what you found during COVID? Yeah, so, it, you know, in COVID-19, um, certainly my, my experience, I was a, a clinical fellow um, uh, during the first year of, of COVID was we went from when I had trained as a, a resident to really seeing proning, again, infrequently. And, and when proning was done, it was sort of a, a curiosity to folks. You kind of would percolate throughout the hospital. Oh, there's a the patient that's proned in the, in the MICU. They must be really, really sick. And in COVID, things changed really rapidly uh, in our practice. Um, and uh, we had ICUs that were full of patients that, um, one, did meet proning criteria. So that changed. But we were much more readily um, proning patients. Uh, in our institution, um, that was my sort of anecdotal experience. We subsequently studied this and found that across our five hospital system, proning went from being used about, again, 6% of the time historically to more like 60% of the time. Uh, in COVID. So really marked increases in use of prone positioning and um, your experience uh, as well, Sergio, from talking before the call, it was similar um, in data from now trials and other observational studies have shown that this this adoption of prone positioning was really quite quite widespread um, early in COVID. Um, so there, were, there was a major change. And, and, and clearly, I mean, I, I, I still recall, I mean, we were talking about this having like literally, I mean, ICUs full of patients and several of them being prone, and it was it became a common occurrence, right? You would walk into your 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 MICU or your your COVID ICU, and there would be like a boatload of patients who were prone or being prone. And uh, clearly, sure. I, I suspect that there's a lot of factors that led to that. One of them <laughs> might have been driven by fear. One of them, the crisis situation. But uh, it is interesting that a lot of the um, barriers that people would put up for proning dissipated very quickly. What are some of the factors that you have um, seen in your research that might be associated with this rapid change during COVID? Yeah, that, that's a great point. I, you know, I think because um, it, it's worth highlighting that the sort of the evidence for using proning hadn't changed. So why were clinicians now all of a sudden so readily uh, using it? Um, one is I, I think you know, because of the fear that you mentioned and the unknown and really some of the desperation that, that we all felt uh, early in the COVID pandemic um, in the face of this, this great challenge, um, clinicians adjusted their attitudes towards proning. And I, I think many of the clinicians I spoke to in, in the research I've done have said that, you know, I always believed proning worked, but um, by sort of using it more often and um, 
really feeling that it worked, sort of seeing that they were they felt their patients were benefiting from it, they changed their attitude where instead of sort of a sort of high risk kind of salvage approach, they were thinking of this as you know this is something we should basically be doing for for each of our patients that qualify. So there was a, a shift in clinician attitudes, um, and that's really at the prescriber level. So these are the MBs, uh, DOs, uh, APPs that are deciding to use proning. Um, but probably equally and, and perhaps even more important, as you know from working in ICU, is you really need team buy-in, um, particularly around a therapy like proning, which does require multidisciplinary uh, teams to get it done. Um, and so one of the biggest shifts is our, our nursing colleagues uh, really um, became active and, and willing partners for wanting to, to prone patients. Um, and I think this was from for multiple reasons. One is... Um, again, I think in, in a sense, it, COVID was new and um, it was new to be in ICUs that were sort of exclusively taking care of ARDS patients. So it allowed for this paradigm shift uh, in care. And I think teams just sort of bought in. They said, this is what we are doing. This is uh, how we treat COVID ARDS. And um, what I'm interested in harnessing in my research is, you know, how can we um, harness this type of change without worldwide pandemic. Um, and then lastly, you know, hospitals and ICUs did have to support this. And I think there's a number of ways that um, proning was supported uh, within our institutions and others. So um, uh, many hospitals had sort of local guidelines, and this is really important to uh, clinicians, particularly clinicians on the ground that may not be um, <clears throat> critical care specialists. So I'm talking about house staff, I'm talking about nurses that may float between units. Um, having guidelines that are not necessarily from the APS or from the European Society of Intensive Care Medicine, but, you know, they're guidelines from your local hospital, and they're very relevant to you and, and how you practice and the equipment you have. And having a guideline that sort of gives you some, some uh, guidance on how to do the procedure, how to do it in a way that you feel is most protective for the patient in terms of limiting risk um, was really important. Um, many hospitals during surge periods had proning teams. Um, at our hospital, uh, we had a proning team, which was a, a group of actually redeployed physical therapists. Uh, so they were outpatient physical therapists that were, no, were not working because uh, clinics were shut down during the, the early COVID surges. And they were in the hospital really just to, to help uh, with the physical maneuvers of, of proning and supinating patients over time. Now, something like that's probably not scalable um, to have a team of, of people on call 24 hours a day uh, ready to help prone patients because it doesn't, um, uh, fortunately, patients are not getting ARES that, uh, of that degree as frequently as we were seeing in COVID. Um, but I think some of the principles can work of sort of having people on teams that are expert voices that are comfortable with this procedure and even in the absence of doing it every day, uh, have a good mental model of, of how it can be done so that when it's time to, to use a therapy like prone positioning, uh, they feel comfortable in guiding the team through it. And I think that another important aspect is really um, the, the action bias, right? We were so helpless with the new disease that we felt we didn't have any new therapies to offer that I believe that when people started teaching their teams and, and proning, it felt that we were doing something for these patients in addition to the support that we were, we were providing. And that seemed to all of a sudden dissipate a lot of previous barriers, right? Like, um, oh, we need this, we need that. All of a sudden people could figure out how to get it done at a large scale. 
in places really all over all over the country. So I think it's just an interesting kind of situation, but ultimately a lot to, to be learned. Now, you, you talked about at clinician attitudes, and, and I do believe this is a topic that we could, I mean, talk a whole out, uh, podcast about, but, it, but it's interesting how poorly we, we really evaluate a risk for our patients, right? So a lot of times I've heard people talk about how risky or uh, uh, the risk-benefit ratio of proning, uh, ignoring the data, but saying, well, it might be too, too risky, they're too sick for, for proning, yet uh, on a regular basis, we are providing therapies such as IV heparin and maybe thrombolytics that probably have a, a demonstrable mathematical risk that's higher of causing harm, right? But we don't right. feel it, Absolutely. so it's okay. <laughs> it's just uh, yeah. quite interesting. Now, with that attitude change, we went probably like everything, the pendulum goes way, way, way far. And all of a sudden, people who weren't intubated were, were being prone. Any any comments on awake prone position in COVID-19? Yeah, no, this this is fascinating. You know, I, it, I think people became so excited about proning that, that uh, as you noted, really ahead of the evidence, before there was evidence that it, it may be helpful um, in many hospitals, uh, many hospital systems, including in my own, uh, we saw uh, clinicians really encouraging patients to, to quote, self-prone, so patients that are not intubated. Um, so it's interesting that this was also uh, embraced uh, with an enthusiasm. Um, you know, this is, uh, talking about implementation, this is potentially a hard therapy to implement because it now requires um, another actor to completely buy in, which is the, the patient. Um, and while some patients sort of anecdotally felt better awake patients when they were lying on their stomach prone, um, you know, some patients did not and, and having them do it for long periods of time, or that's when there's probably a benefit, um, is a, is a challenging therapy to implement. You know, this has since now been studied in uh, large randomized controlled trials and in a meta trial that included data from um, harmonized randomized controls trials across uh, multiple countries. And the signal for these trials is uh, this intervention, again, if delivered for long enough, so patients sort of have to have to be in this prone position for a long, long period to, to derive benefit, it, it appears, um, that this probably reduces the risk of intubation. Uh, it's unclear that this changes mortality, um, but there may be some patients that you can um, reduce the risk of intubation or, or save from intubation um, and mechanical ventilation through the use of, of awake proning. But um, I think major challenges uh, in implementation uh, to, to do this therapy uniformly. And 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 one of the the areas that that I was concerned about and it kind of. Uh, upon reflecting what we were doing was that um, a lot of people would argue, well, we have nothing to lose, right? I mean, we're just asking the patients right. to do it. But I do believe that one of the, 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 the impacts of COVID was that we were probably at one point um, delaying intubations in some of our patients at a, right. at, a, at a large scale. And perhaps that is something that in the future we should understand a little bit better, right? Um, again, for the right patient, it might work, but for some patients, it might just basically delay them getting intubated, which could right. potentially have its own uh, morbidity and mortality. Yeah, I, absolutely. That's a, it makes this a hard therapy to think about sort of what's the, the right use case, uh, in, in part because it, it's really hard to define 
um, both in research and certainly at the bedside in our, in our daily practices, when the right time to intubate some of these patients with, with ARDS is. You know, in, in theory, there's patients that we think might do better um, on a ventilator where we're able to control uh, their ventilation uh, perhaps a bit more and uh, reduce their respiratory drive um, with sedation uh, potentially and get them breathing um, in a more lung protective fashion. But exactly who those patients are and <clears throat> how to balance those risks and benefits is, is a real challenge. The other thing I'll say is, you know, for um, we often hear this and I, I know I've said it that, well, you know, it can't hurt to do this. You know, I, I think virtually every therapy um, has side effects uh, if you use it enough. Um, so everything should be used when there's a reason to use it or else uh, if there's going to be no benefit, you're, you're only enhancing uh, risks, even if they're small. The other thing that I, I think is not talked about as much is there's sort of uh, intellectual costs or opportunity costs for doing all these therapies. You, you can only have so many things in our head. And if we're prior prioritizing therapies that, um, that we think, yeah, this can't hurt, but I really don't think it's going to work. You know, we're sort of maybe putting mental energy and, and time and resources into something that we could be applying to something else um, that may be more beneficial to the patient um, or, or even, um, you know, having them time to sit with the patient's family, sit with the patient and really have a, a better uh, interaction. Yeah, I think it's important because everything we say yes to means we're saying no to something else at that time, right? And uh, that's right. on the yeah. other hand, even when we don't do anything, that's still a decision that it's an active decision. And I think that it's important to kind of, like you said, control that bandwidth so that we are putting our efforts where we, we know as of now that more likely to give us a result because the truth is also that nothing is written in stone and we might learn more about prone positioning in the future. But as, as of now, right, where the data stands, um, there's clearly, I mean, um, patients who would benefit more than others, and we should focus on those. Yeah, absolutely. So, Chad, you, you obviously, this is an area of interest for you, and now we're post-COVID, uh, I think, uh, officially, uh, and uh, by every measure, I mean, ICUs have very little, if none, COVID in their in their senses right now. And I know that you have recently looked at this again. What have you found? Yeah. So in our in our um, health system, we used EMR data to monitor prone practice over the first three years of the pandemic, so starting in 2020 uh, through 2022. Um, and what we found in patients with COVID ARDS, this is COVID specifically, um, is just what we had described early in the pandemic, where there were very large increases in the use of proning, about 60% of patients receiving it. <clears throat> and in 2022, although the volumes are lower, so it's a lower number of patients, the percentage of those patients that receive proning is also much lower um, and, and is sort of decreasing back to historic uh, levels or around uh, between 15 and 20 percent. Um, so we think proning is, is decreasing, particularly certainly in COVID ARDS. Um, we're interested in sort of looking about how the, the practice in COVID ARDS has translated to ARDS more broadly and um, what's happening over time um, in, in that population. But for COVID, it's decreasing. Um, <clears throat> the reasons why I, I think are, are probably multifactorial. 
Um, you brought up a very good point earlier, Sergio, about sort of economies of scale. Um, and when you had, you know, entire units where everyone was working lockstep to prone and supinate multiple patients a day, um, even though, you know, I'll argue that proning does not necessarily require specialized equipment or uh, a lot of um, intensive, expensive resources, there's sort of basic things that were on hand um, in basic skills that people were much more facile with um, in the um, activation energy to, to prone was low uh, in that setting. The other thing I think may be playing a role here um, is clinician recognition of uh, someone that may benefit from proning. Um, even in COVID, when you don't have a unit full of COVID patients, some people may not be sort of thinking about the syndrome uh, of ARDS and, and thinking about, you know, now this patient's gotten slowly worse over the last day. How much support are they actually on? You know, have we really been able to wean the FiO2 from when they were intubated down below 60%, for example? And um, I think people are, are maybe a little bit less attuned to exactly where someone is in their course of ARDS. Um, and then lastly, uh, I hypothesize, I don't know, but I think there's a, a recency uh, bias as well in that, um, you know, if a clinician and their team has uh, proned um, six patients uh, yesterday and in many of those patients, they probably get some immediate satisfaction of seeing oxygenation improve. If they haven't seen that recently, they may be less apt to, to you know, take a patient uh, weeks later and say that, yeah, let's, let's use proning in this patient. Perfect. So as we move forward, what, what I would say um, as a lesson learned is that we can do it because we did it during COVID, right? We have right. the data to suggest that for some patients, it might be a therapy we should be thinking on earlier and could improve their outcomes. Uh, and it now seems that there's opportunity to do better uh, where we are today in, in the current baseline. So as we move forward, Chad, why don't you tell us a little bit of where do we stand today, just from a clinical perspective, very actionable, practical. Um, how should we be thinking about, or who should we be thinking about proning and how? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. You know, so I, I think I'll I, I'll highlight again that I, I think the evidence has, has probably not changed very much about uh, who would benefit from proning and, and how we should be doing it. <clears throat> so based on uh, really largely the Perceva trial, uh, proning patients with moderate to severe ARDS, so at a, a P to F of less than or equal to 150. Uh, and these are patients that sort of have this despite optimize, optimizing the ventilator. It's not right when someone gets put on the ventilator, but for patients that are persistently hypoxemic over that first 12, 24-hour course of their, their ARDS, um, those are patients that I, I think should be prone and the evidence of support that they'll be proned. Um, this proning should be uh, a prolonged session of proning. So um, the Perceva trial was at least 16 hours uh, proned, a little bit longer on average. Um, our durations in COVID were often uh, much longer, but that's a little bit beyond where there's evidence. So the guidelines in 2017 sort of say, you know, at least, um, they actually say at least 12 hours. I would argue for at least 16 based on uh, the best data that we have. And 
really continuing proning until um, someone is no longer meeting oxygen criteria for proning would, would also be most in line with the data. So in Perceva, you would supine a patient. Uh, if they still met criteria for proning, a PDF less than 150 and an FIO2 greater than 0.6, uh, that patient would be reproned. And, and that's probably the strategy with the most uh, evidence behind, uh, behind it. I should mention that you know you're asking about who who we should be proning today. That actually just today, I I, I post called. I woke up and saw this, but the uh, European Society of Intensive Care Medicine published 2023 guidelines for uh, ARDS, um, and their recommendation now is is just in line with what I just said. So moderate severe ARDS, not just the severe ARDS. So they, that's the big change from the 2017 guideline, um, but but otherwise things remain uh, remain largely the same. And I think it's also uh, interesting. I, I have not seen that, but I'll definitely link that document uh, in the show notes and uh, take a look at it. Thanks for sharing that, Chad. But yeah. it's also interesting that from the ATS, uh, European Society, SECM 2017 um, guidelines, they were kind of saying severe patients, so PO2, FO2 ratio um, below 100 and uh, 12 or more hours. And then I think there was a, a French um, guideline that... Um, said um, 16 or more, and now the most recent European guidelines are really more aligned with what you mentioned in Perceva, which is moderate and severe, so 150 is the magical number there, and uh, 16 Great. hours or more, which I think, uh, like you said, that is still up in the air in terms of is uh, 24 better than 18, is 36 uh, even, but we don't have data for that, so I think that starting Great. with uh, 16 hours at least and then organizing around that, and uh, continuing proning sessions till you are um, out of that range of 150 and uh, FIO2 of 60, right? Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely the in line with sort of the most evidence uh, or, or the strongest evidence would support that practice. Excellent. And, and obviously the, there, there's still a lot, I think, to be determined in the awake proning uh, I also think that right. we probably <clears throat> went too far with non-invasive ventilation and, and COVID for reasons that were just related to logistics and being overwhelmed, right? So there's mm -hmm. still a lot to be discussed there. But I think for our ARDS patients, sticking with that, and, and perhaps one of the the the, the asks from, for, for our audience is really to be thinking more aggressively about looking at these PATFO2 ratios, trying to figure out who would qualify, trying to push these things earlier, and uh, making sure that we utilize the available evidence-based therapies before we jump to things like ECMO and transferring people to maybe to an ECMO center, right? Yeah, that's absolutely right. I, I think that's a, a key point, particularly around um, uh, ECMO, um, is that you know that's a very expensive therapy, um, probably beneficial in the most severe patients, but expensive and, and not without very significant risks. And so if, uh, if there's probably some subgroup of patients that are going to improve enough with prone positioning and time and lung protective mechanical ventilation, that they will, will not require uh, ECMO. And if you can save patients from that, that risk, um, I think that's, that's a major benefit for them. And I know there's not a lot of data on this, but since we mentioned ECMO and we're talking about prone position, any comments on prone position in patients on ECMO? 
Yeah, this is this is a very interesting um, area of uh, investigation, and it, it has it is something that's sort of actively being um, investigated. I think in at least one currently recruiting randomized controlled trial, and then it's something that's been reported uh, in terms of institutions' experience with doing it. Um, you know, observationally in, in data, there there appears that there's an association with patients that are uh, prone um, in improvements in, in mortality uh, in survival. Um, but it's very hard to know if that's, uh, if the proning is, is actually causing that increase in survival or if it's the type of patients that are able to receive proning uh, while on ECMO. Um, but I, I think this is a, a wide open area. Um, you know, as as you know, the way we use mechanical ventilation in patients that are supported with ECMO is also, is quite variable across um, uh, institutions and, and internationally in terms of how people are approaching it. Some people are using sort of near apneic ventilation. Some people are um, <clears throat> using more traditional low tidal volume ventilation. But it's it's very unclear sort of what the role of proning is in in these different types of uh, ventilatory paradigms and uh, in someone on, on ECMO, so an area of future research. Perfect. And in terms of, uh, uh, of teams or ICUs who are um, interested and in maybe in improving the use of, uh, of prone positioning or in increasing the, uh, the delivery of prone position at the bedside to the right patients, any implementation science um, lessons that you could share with us uh, that you have learned from looking at this in COVID? Any general recommendations? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I would sort of focus my my most um, my top recommendation would be really incorporating the views uh, needs of the the full multidisciplinary team. Um, so in most units, that's going to um, absolutely include nurses. Will include prescribers, although again, I really stress I think the nursing teams are, are hugely important for carrying this out, um, and uh, respiratory therapists in terms of uh, managing the airway and feeling comfortable with how the airway is positioned in a, in a prone uh, patient. So, a listening viewpoints in your local ICU of, of what those teams would need to feel comfortable with proning. Do they feel comfortable with proning? Um, and then trying to narrow that gap if they do not uh, in, in providing them with what they need, whether it be training or specific equipment um, to do that. This training, you know, I think particularly in an era where um, fortunately we're seeing uh, a less incidence of ARDS than in 2020 and 2021 with the COVID surges. Um, is having teams sort of practice for this and uh, in it, you know, simulation may be overkill with something like proning, but at least sort of mentally going through the model of um, here's sort of the algorithm for how we might approach a patient with uh, moderate to severe ARDS or severe ARDS so that people have this mental model and are, are sort of ready to use proning when it's uh, when it is indicated. And then <clears throat> I would highlight that, you know, I think the widespread adoption of proning across many institutions worldwide um, really shows that the barrier of needing specialized equipment um, can be overcome. Most places are not using things like rotoprone beds or other specialized equipment. That being said, I think there's some basic equipment um, at the to have stocked and at the bedside that helps um, patients be prone in a way where um, they are least likely to develop things like pressure sores and in um, the likes. These are, you know, 
pillows to comfort the uh, to position the face, uh, even just having towel rolls so that nursing teams can easily position people in a way that they feel like is secure, uh, safe, and, and not uh, uh, undue burden for, for the patient or the team. Um, and then the last thing I'll, I'll mention is, again, thinking about um, what your institutions can do to have sort of a locally responsive guideline. It doesn't have to be a comprehensive guideline, but um, some guidance for the common critical care syndromes. We're talking now about protein ARDS, but sepsis would, would potentially be another one where, you know, we're having some locally responsive guideline that kind of mirrors the culture in uh, your ICU so that when people pick that up and um, look it up on shift, it's it's relevant to them and, and they feel like it's uh, speaking directly to them. Yeah, I think that's a great idea because what I've seen also, especially post-COVID, is that somebody prones and if there's a different um, physician that comes and takes care of them, they might have a different idea of when they, they want to reprone or, 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 or continue proning and having criteria like the ones you mentioned, right, based on uh, the available guidelines and sharing and socializing that and discussing that among teams, I think, can also help us standardize our approaches. And, and as we standardize our approaches, I think we will also get better at it and learn what works and doesn't work. Absolutely. Excellent. Well, Chad, we, we'd like to finish uh, the podcast with a couple of questions that are outside the realm of the, the clinical topic. Would that be okay? Yeah, absolutely. So the first question relates to books. Uh, is there a book or books that have influenced you significantly or that you have gifted often to others? Yeah, that's a, a great question. I, I was thinking about this. Um, you know, I, um, I, I was actually a career changer. So I was a musician for, for some years before deciding to go uh, into medicine. And, and some of the... Uh, in part, I was influenced by books that I was reading and things that I was thinking about. Um, and although it's uh, maybe a little silly, one of these books that really influenced me was called Omnivore's Dilemma by Michael Pollan. It was about sort of how um, food systems and um, or how the food that we eat and decide to eat on a daily basis uh, interacts with this incredibly complex uh, ecological societal uh, system that produces the food that we eat and what are some of the uh, potential health consequences of that, the environmental consequences of that. And for me, for some reason at that time in my early life, it was really impactful for sort of thinking more about uh, science and thinking about uh, how health is uh, not just a, a, a pill um, or uh, a lab or a study, but really something that is um, deeply ingrained in society and a, and a complex outcome with, with multiple inputs. Yeah. Certainly, I think a, a wonderful read, and we'll link it in the in the show notes. Um, it, two things I can say about that book is one is it, it emphasized the percent of corn seen in a chicken McNugget, which I found was fascinating. I never thought about that, right? And I never had one since. <laughs> but I, I, on the other side, I think that I still eat meat after reading that book, and that I think yeah. is a failure of my rational approach to life. <laughs> but I'd have to I'd have to remember. I think the author himself is a uh, an omnivore, although I know he's changed over over the years as well. Um, cool, awesome, so complex choices. <laughs> <laughs> so the the second question is: What do you believe to be true in medicine or in life that most other people don't believe or don't act like they believe? Yeah, huh? Um, that's a, a a great question. I. You know, I, I don't think this is something that most people um, do not believe, but I, I think it's something that in medicine we are 
um, sometimes prone to forget because we work in high stress environments. There's a lot of clinician burnout, but I, I think I, I always try to remember in my hardest shifts and um, with patients that are, are challenging for a variety of ways that it's generally always harder to be the patient than the doctor. And um, that most of our patients really uh, need us, even when we're frustrated by certain aspects of, of care. And, and having that reframing has, has helped me uh, when I feel like I'm on the verge of, uh, of burning out or, or perhaps starting to think of a, a patient interaction in a way that's that's not going to be helpful for certainly the patient and uh, I think also going to be less fulfilling for, for myself and, and my team. I think that's a great point. That probably extends to the patient families as well, right? Uh, something to remember, we get to go back home and it's always a lot harder to be in that other position. So I think that's a powerful, powerful lesson for all of us to remember. And the final question is, what would you want every intensivist APP listening to us to know? Could be a quote or a fact, or can be something related to what we talked today. Yeah, great question. Um, I will. I think I, what I'm going to do here is probably misattribute a quote because I, I don't know who said it. Um, but when I first joined my residency training program, um, in, in I did the ICU as my first rotation. Um, one of the things that we heard that our old program director had told people about intensive care is something along the lines of. Uh, quote, it's not that hard. It just requires that you do the right thing all the time, uh, every time. Um, and it was kind of a joke uh, as I first joined the ICU because that seemed like an impossible standard to be doing the exact right thing every time, all the time. Uh, but as I've done this for longer, and um, I, I think the spirit of that quote, and it's something that still guides me, is what I look at as the right thing all the time, every time, is, is really just doing the best thing for the patient in front of me at that time. And that's often acknowledging to myself, I think importantly, uh, often to the patient and their family that there's uncertainty. And um, I don't know what the exact right thing is. So sometimes the exact right thing is acknowledging that uncertainty uh, and uh, making the decision together. Um, and so having that be the guiding light uh, for me is, is something that uh, I'm hoping to carry forward in my career. Perfect. I think that, that that's a perfect place uh, to stop, Chad. I want to thank you for um, sharing your expertise with us, for sharing your time with us so generously, and also for, for all the research you've done looking at these issues related to implementation, and look forward to having you back on the podcast. Absolutely. It's my pleasure, Sergio. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Critical Matters, a sound podcast. Make sure to subscribe to Critical Matters on Apple or Google Podcasts and share with your network. Sounds transforming the way critical care is provided in hospitals across the country. To learn more, visit www.soundphysicians.com.